Section 36 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Murphy. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Jean d'Arc's Victory at Orléans a d 1429 by sir edward shepherd creasy in the hundred years war between england and france a critical period was reached when henry v in 1415 won the battle of agincourt and five years later by the treaty of troyes secured the succession to the french throne on the death of charles the sixth both monarchs dying in 1422 charles the seventh was proclaimed king of france and henry's son henry the sixth succeeded to his father's throne france now realized that her condition was well-nigh hopeless for the greater part of her territory was in the hands of her enemies when the english began the siege of orleans the extinction of french independence seemed to be inevitable the chivalry of france had been wasted in terrible wars and the spirits of her soldiers were daunted by repeated disaster the english king had been proclaimed in paris and the native prince was a dissolute trifler stained with the assassination of the most powerful noble of the land anarchy and brigandage everywhere prevailed and the condition of the peasantry was too wretched to be described such says lamartine was the state of the nation when providence showed it a savior and a child this child was jeanne d'arc called lupicelle the maid more fully the maid of orleans whose character and services to her country made her perhaps the most illustrious heroine of history she was born at Domremy in the northeast part of france january the sixth fourteen twelve all that is essential concerning her personality and life prior to the great achievement recorded here will be found in creasy's own introduction to his spirited account of the victory at orleans orleans was looked upon as the last stronghold of the french national party if the english could once obtain possession of it their victorious progress through the residue of the kingdom seemed free from any serious obstacle accordingly the earl of salisbury one of the bravest and most experienced of the english generals who had been trained under henry v marched to the attack of the all-important city and after reducing several places of inferior consequence in the neighborhood appeared with his army before its walls on the twelfth of october fourteen twenty eight the city of orleans itself was on the north side of the loire but its suburbs extended far on the southern side and a strong bridge connected them with the town a fortification which in modern military phrase would be termed a tete du pont defended the bridgehead on the southern side and two towers called the torelles were built on the bridge itself at a little distance from the tete du pont indeed the solid masonry of the bridge terminated at the torelles and the communication thence with the tete du pont in the southern shore was by means of a drawbridge the tourelle and the tete du pont formed together a strong fortified post capable of containing a garrison of considerable strength and so long as this was in possession of the orleanais they could communicate freely with the southern provinces the inhabitants of which like the orleanais themselves supported the cause of their dauphine against the foreigners lord salisbury rightly judged the capture of the tourelles to be the most material step toward the reduction of the city itself accordingly he directed his principal operations against this post 
and after some severe repulses he carried the tourelles by storm on the twenty third of october the french however broke down the arches of the bridge that were nearest to the north bank and thus rendered a direct assault from the tourelles upon the city impossible but the possession of this post enabled the english to distress the town greatly by a battery of cannon which they planted there and which commanded some of the principal streets it has been observed by hume that this is the first siege in which any important use appears to have been made of artillery and even at orleans both besiegers and besieged seem to have employed their cannons merely as instruments of destruction against their enemies men and not to have trusted them as engines of demolition against their enemies walls and works the efficacy of cannon in breaching solid masonry was taught europe by the turks a few years afterward at the memorable siege of constantinople in our french wars as in the wars of classic nations famine was looked on as the surest weapon to compel the submission of a well-walled town and the great object of the besiegers was to effect a complete circumvallation the great ambit of the walls of orleans and the facilities which the river gave for obtaining succors and supplies rendered the capture of the town by this process a matter of great difficulty nevertheless lord salisbury and lord suffolk who succeeded him in command of the english after his death by a cannon-ball carried on the necessary works with great skill and resolution six strongly fortified posts called bastilles were formed at certain intervals round the town and the purpose of the english engineers was to draw strong lines between them during the winter little progress was made with the entrenchments but when the spring of fourteen twenty nine came the english resumed their work with activity the communications between the city and the country became more difficult and the approach of want began already to be felt in orleans the besieging force also fared hardly for stores and provisions until relieved by the effects of a brilliant victory which sir john falstaff one of the great english generals gained at rouvray near orleans a few days after ash wednesday fourteen twenty nine with only sixteen hundred fighting men sir john completely defeated an army of french and scots four thousand strong which had been collected for the purpose of aiding the orleanese and harassing the besiegers after this encounter which seemed decisively to confirm the superiority of the english in battle over their adversaries fastolf escorted large supplies of stores and food to suffolk's camp and the spirits of the english rose to the highest pitch at the prospect of the speedy capture of the city before them and the consequent subjection of all france beneath their arms the orleanese now in their distress offered to surrender the city into the hands of the duke of burgundy who though the ally of the english was yet one of their native princes the regent bedford refused these terms and the speedy submission of the city to the english seemed inevitable the dauphin charles who was now at chinon with his remnant of a court despaired of continuing any longer the struggle for his crown and was only prevented from abandoning the country by the more masculine spirits of his mistress and his queen yet neither they nor the boldest of charles captains could have shown him where to find resources for prolonging war and least of all could any human skill have predicted the quarter whence rescue was to come to orleans and to france in the village of domremy on the borders of lorraine there was a poor peasant of the name of jacques d'arc respected in his station of life and who had reared a family in virtuous habits and in the practice of strictest devotion his eldest daughter was named for her parents jeannette 
but she was called Jeanne by the French, which was Latinized into Johanna and Anglicized into Joan. At the time when Jeanne first attracted attention, she was about 18 years of age. She was naturally of a susceptible disposition, which diligent attention to the legends of saints and tales of fairies, aided by the dreamy loneliness of her life while tending her father's flocks, had made her peculiarly prone to enthusiastic fervor. At the same time, she was eminent for piety and purity of soul, and for her compassionate gentleness to the sick and the distressed. The district where she dwelt had escaped comparatively free from the ravages of war, but the approach of roving bands of Burgundian or English troops frequently spread terror through Domremy. Once the village had been plundered by some of these marauders, and Jane and her family had been driven from their home and forced to seek refuge at a time at Neufchateau. The peasantry in Domremy were principally attached to the House of Orléans and the Dauphine, and all the miseries which France endured were there imputed to the Burgundian faction and their allies, the English, who were seeking to enslave unhappy France. Thus, from infancy to girlhood, Jeanne had heard continually of the woes of the war, and had herself witnessed some of the wretchedness that it caused. A feeling of intense patriotism grew in her with her growth. The deliverance of France from the English was the subject of her reveries by day and her dreams by night. Blended with these aspirations were recollections of the miraculous interpositions of heaven in favor of the oppressed, which she had learned from the legends of her church. Her faith was undoubting, her prayers were fervent. She feared no danger, for she felt no sin, and at length she believed herself to have received the supernatural inspiration which she sought. According to her own narrative, delivered by her to the merciless inquisitors in the time of her captivity and approaching death, she was about thirteen years old when her revelations commenced. Her own words describe them best. At the age of thirteen, a voice from God came to her to help her in ruling herself, and that voice came to her about the hour of noon, in summertime, while she was in her father's garden. And she had fasted the day before. And she heard the voice on her right, in the direction of the church. And when she heard the voice, she also saw a bright light. Afterward, St. Michael and St. Margaret and St. Catherine appeared to her. They were always in a halo of glory. She could see that their heads were crowned with jewels, and she heard their voices, which were sweet and mild. She did not distinguish their arms or limbs. She heard them more frequently than she saw them, and the usual time when she heard them was when the church bells were sounding for prayer. And if she was in the woods when she heard them, she could plainly distinguish their voices drawing near to her. When she thought that she had discerned the heavenly voices, she knelt down and bowed herself to the ground. Their presence gladdened her even to tears, and after they departed she wept, because they had not taken her with them back to paradise. They always spoke soothingly to her. They told her that France would be saved, and that she was to save it. Such were the visions and the voices that moved the spirit of the girl of thirteen, and as she grew older they became more frequent and more clear. At last the tidings of the siege of Orléans reached Domremy. Jane heard her parents and neighbors talk of the sufferings of its population, of the ruin which his capture would bring on their lawful sovereign, and of the distress of the Dauphin and his court. Jeanne's heart was sorely troubled at the thought of the fate of Orléans, and her voices now ordered her to leave her home, 
and warned her that she was the instrument chosen by heaven for driving away the english from that city and for taking the dauphin to be anointed king at rheims at length she informed her parents of her divine mission and told them that she must go to the sire de baudricourt who commanded at vaucalore and who was the appointed person to bring her into the presence of the king whom she was to save neither the anger nor the grief of her parents who said that they would rather see her drowned than exposed to the contamination of the camp could move her from her purpose one of her uncles consented to take her to valcolore where de baudricourt at first thought her mad and derided her but by degrees was led to believe if not in her inspiration at least in her enthusiasm and in its possible utility to the dauphin's cause the inhabitants of Valcolore were completely won over to her side by the piety and devoutness which she displayed, and by her firm assurance in the truth of her mission. She told them that it was God's will that she should go to the king, and that no one but her could save the kingdom of France. She said that she herself would rather remain with her poor mother and spin, but the Lord had ordered her forth. The fame of the maid, as she was termed, the renown of her holiness and her mission, spread far and wide. Badricourt sent her with an escort to Chinon, where the Dauphin Charles was dallying away his time. Her voices had bidden her assume the arms and the apparel of a knight, and the wealthiest inhabitants of Alcalor had vied with each other in equipping her with war-horse, armor, and sword. On reaching Chinon, she was, after some delay, admitted into the presence of the Dauphin. Charles decidedly dressed himself far less richly than many of his courtiers were apparelled, and mingled with them, when Jeanne was introduced, in order to see if the holy maid would address her exhortations to the wrong person. But she instantly singled him out, and, kneeling before him, said, Most noble Dauphin, the King of Heaven announces to you, by me, that you shall be anointed and crowned king in the city of Rams, and that you shall be his vicegerent in France. His features may probably have been seen by her previously in portraits, or have been described to her by others, but she herself believed that her voices inspired her when she addressed the king, and the report soon spread abroad that the holy maid had found the king by a miracle, and this, with many other similar rumors, augmented the renown and influence that she now rapidly acquired. The state of public feeling in France was now favorable to an enthusiastic belief in a divine interposition in favor of the party that had hitherto been unsuccessful and oppressed. The humiliations which had befallen the French royal family and nobility were looked on as the just judgments of God upon them for their vice and impiety. The misfortunes that had come upon France as a nation were believed to have been drawn down by national sins. The English, who had been the instruments of heaven's wrath against France, seemed now, by their pride and cruelty, to be fitting objects of it themselves. France in that age was a profoundly religious country. There was ignorance, there was superstition, there was bigotry, but there was faith, a faith that itself worked true miracles, even while it believed in unreal ones. At this time, also, one of those devotional movements began among the clergy in France, which from time to time occur in national churches, without it being possible for the historian to assign any adequate human cause for their immediate date or extension. Numberless friars and priests traversed the rural districts and towns of France, 
preaching to the people that they must seek from heaven a deliverance from the pillages of the soldiery and the insolence of the foreign oppressors the idea of a providence that works only by general laws was wholly alien to the feelings of the age every political event as well as every natural phenomenon was believed to be the immediate result of a special mandate of god this led to the belief that his holy angels and saints were constantly employed in executing his commands and mingling in the affairs of men the church encouraged these feelings and at the same time sanctioned the concurrent popular belief that hosts of evil spirits were also ever actively interposing in the current of earthly events with whom sorcerers and wizards could league themselves and thereby obtain the exercise of supernatural power thus all things favored the influence which john obtained both over friends and foes the french nation as well as the english and the burgundians readily admitted that superhuman beings inspired her the only question was whether these beings were good or evil angels whether she brought with her airs from heaven or blasts from hell this question seemed to her countrymen to be decisively settled in her favor by the austere sanctity of her life by the holiness of her conversation but still more by her exemplary attention to all the services and rites of the church the dauphin at first feared the injury might be done to his cause if he laid himself open to the charge of having leagued himself with a sorceress every imaginable test therefore was resorted to in order to set jeanne's orthodoxy and purity beyond suspicion at last charles and his advisers felt safe in accepting her services as those of a true and virtuous christian daughter of the holy church it is indeed probable that charles himself and some of his counsellors may have suspected jeanne of being a mere enthusiast and it is certain that dunois and others of the best generals took considerable latitude in obeying or deviating from the military orders that she gave but over the mass of the people in the soldiery her influence was unbounded while charles and his doctors of theology and court ladies had been deliberating as to recognizing or dismissing the maid a considerable period had passed away during which a small army the last gleanings as it seemed of the english sword had been assembled at blois under dunois lahir zaintre and other chiefs who to their natural valor were now beginning to unite the wisdom that is taught by misfortune it was resolved to send john with this force and a convoy of provisions to orleans the distress of that city had now become urgent but the communication with the open country was not entirely cut off the orleanais had heard of the holy maid whom providence had raised up for their deliverance and their messengers earnestly implored the dauphin to send her to them without delay jean appeared at the camp at blois clad in a new suit of brilliant white armor mounted on a stately black war-horse and with a lance in her right hand which she had learned to wield with skill and grace her hair was unhelmeted so that all could behold her fair and expressive features her deep-set and earnest eyes and her long black hair which was parted across her forehead and bound by a ribbon behind her back she wore at her side a small battle-axe and the consecrated sword marked on the blade with five crosses which had at her bidding been taken for her from the shrine of st catherine at fibois a page carried her banner which she had caused to be made and embroidered as her voices enjoined it was white satin strewn with fleur-de-lis and on it were the words jesus maria and the representation of the saviour in his glory 
Jeanne afterward generally bore her banner herself in battle. She said that though she loved her sword much, she loved her banner forty times as much, and she loved to carry it because it could not kill anyone. Thus accoutred, she came to lead the troops of France, who looked with soldierly admiration on her well-proportioned and upright figure, the skill with which she managed her war-horse, and the easy grace with which she handled her weapons. Her military education had been short, but she had availed herself of it well. She had also the good sense to interfere little with the maneuvers of the troops, leaving these things to Dunois and others whom she had the discernment to recognize as the best officers in the camp. Her tactics in action were simple enough. As she herself described it, I used to say to them, go boldly in among the English, and then I used to go boldly in myself. Such, as she told her inquisitors, was the only spell she used, and it was one of power. But, while interfering little with the military discipline of the troops, in all matters of moral discipline she was inflexibly strict. All the abandoned followers of the camp were driven away. She compelled both generals and soldiers to attend regularly at confessional. Her chaplain and other priests marched with the army under her orders, and at every halt an altar was set up and the sacrament administered. No oath or foul language passed without punishment or censure. Even the roughest and most hardened veterans obeyed her. They had put off for a time the bestial coarseness which had grown on them during a life of bloodshed and rapine. They felt that they must go forth in a new spirit to a new career, and acknowledged the beauty of the holiness in which the heaven-sent maid was leading them to certain victory. Jeanne marched from Blois on the 25th of April, with a convoy of provisions for Orléans, accompanied by Dunois, Lahire, and the other chief captains of the French, and on the evening of the 28th they approached the town. In the words of the old chronicler Hall, the Englishmen, perceiving that they within could not long continue for fault of vitality and power, kept not their watch so diligently as they were accustomed, nor scoured now the country environed as they before had ordained. Which negligence the citizens shut in perceiving, sent word thereof to the French captains, which, with Pucelle, in the dead time of the night, and in a great rain and thunder, with all their vitality and artillery, entered into the city. When it was day, the maid rode in solemn procession through the city, clad in complete armor and mounted on a white horse. Dunois was by her side, and all the bravest knights of her army and of the garrison followed in her train. The whole population thronged around her, and men, women, and children strove to touch her garments or her banner or her charger. They poured forth blessings on her, whom they already considered their deliverer. In the words used by two of them afterward before the tribunal which reversed the sentence, but could not restore the life of the virgin martyr of France, the people of Orléans, when they first saw her in their city, thought that it was an angel from heaven that had come down to save them. Jeanne spoke gently in reply to their acclamations and addresses. She told them to fear God and trust in Him for safety from the fury of their enemies. She first went to the principal church, where Te Deum was chanted, and then she took up her abode at the house of Jacques Bourgier, one of the principal citizens and whose wife was a matron of good repute. She refused to attend a splendid banquet which had been provided for her, and passed nearly all her time in prayer. When it was known by the English that the maid was in Orléans, 
their minds were not less occupied about her than were the minds of those in the city but it was in a very different spirit the english believed in her supernatural mission as firmly as the french did but they thought her a sorceress who had come to overthrow them by her enchantments an old prophecy which told that a damsel from lorraine was to save france had long been current and it was known and applied to jeanne by foreigners as well as by the natives for months the english had heard of the coming of the maid and the tales of miracles which she was said to have wrought had been listened to by the rough yeomen of the english camp with anxious curiosity and secret awe she had sent a herald to the english generals before she marched for orleans and he had summoned the english generals in the name of the most high to give up to the maid who was sent by heaven the keys of the french cities which they had wrongfully taken and he had also solemnly adjured the english troops whether archers or men of the companies of war or gentlemen or others who were before the city of orleans to depart thence to their homes under peril of being visited by the judgment of god on her arrival in orleans jeanne sent another similar message but the english scoffed at her from their towers and threatened to burn her heralds she determined before she shed the blood of the besiegers to repeat the warning with her own voice and accordingly she mounted one of the boulevards of the town which was within hearing of the tourelle and thence she spoke to the english and bade them depart otherwise they would meet with shame and woe sir william gladsdale whom the french called glacidas commanded the english post at tourelle and he and another english officer replied by bidding her go home and keep her cows and by ribald jest that brought tears of shame and indignation into her eyes but though the english leaders vaunted aloud the effect produced on their army by jeanne's presence in orleans was proved four days after her arrival when on the approach of reinforcements and stores to the town jeanne and le Hare marched out to meet them and escorted the long train of provision wagons safely into orleans between the bastilles of the english who cowered behind their walls instead of charging fiercely and fearlessly as had been their wont on any french band that dared to show itself within reach thus far she had prevailed without striking a blow but the time was now come to test her courage amid the horrors of actual slaughter on the afternoon of the day on which she had escorted the reinforcements into the city while she was resting fatigued at home dunois had seized an advantageous opportunity of attacking the english bastille of st loup and a fierce assault of the orleanais had been made on it which the english garrison of the fort stubbornly resisted jeanne was roused by a sound which she believed to be that of her heavenly voices she called for her arms and horse and quickly equipping herself she mounted to ride off to where the fight was raging in her haste she had forgotten her banner she rode back and without dismounting had it given to her from the window and then she galloped to the gate whence the sally had been made on her way she met some of the wounded french who had been carried back from the fight ha she exclaimed i never can see french blood flow without my hair standing on end she rode out of the gate and met the tide of her countrymen who had been repulsed from the english fort and were flying back to orleans in confusion at the sight of the holy maid and her banner they rallied and renewed the assault jeanne rode forward at their head waving her banner and cheering them on the english quailed at what they believed to be the charge of hell st loup was stormed and its defenders put to the sword except some few whom jeanne succeeded in saving 
all her woman's gentleness returned when the combat was over. It was the first time that she had ever seen a battlefield. She wept at the sight of so many bleeding corpses, and her tears flowed doubly when she reflected that they were the bodies of Christian men who had died without confession. The next day was Ascension Day, and it was passed by Jean in prayer. But on the following morrow it was resolved by the chiefs of the garrison to attack the English forts on the south of the river. For this purpose they crossed the river in boats, and after some severe fighting, in which the maid was wounded in the heel, both the English Bastilles of the Augustines and St. Jean de Blanc were captured. The Tourelles were now the only posts which the besiegers held on the south of the river. But that post was formidably strong, and by its command of the bridge it was key to the deliverance of Orléans. It was known that a fresh English army was approaching, under Falstaff, to reinforce the besiegers, and, should that army arrive while the Tourelles were yet in the possession of their comrades, there was great peril of all the advantages which the French had gained being nullified, and of the siege being again actively carried on. It was resolved, therefore, by the French to assail the Tourelles at once, while the enthusiasm which the presence and the heroic valor of the maid had created was at its height. But the enterprise was difficult. The rampart of the Tete du Pont, or landward bulwark, of the Tourelles was steep and high, and Sir John Gladsdale occupied this all-important fort with five hundred archers and men-at-arms, who were the very flower of the English army. Early in the morning of the 7th of May, some thousands of the best French troops in Orléans heard mass and attended the confessional by Jean's orders and then crossing the river in boats as on the preceding day they assailed the bulwark of the tourelles with light hearts and heavy hands but gladsdale's men encouraged by their bold and skilful leader made a resolute and able defence the maid planted her banner on the edge of the fosse and then springing down into the ditch she placed the first ladder against the wall and began to mount an english archer sent an arrow at her which pierced her corselet and wounded her severely between the neck and shoulder. She fell bleeding from the ladder, and the English were leaping down from the wall to capture her, but her followers bore her off. She was carried to the rear and laid upon the grass, her armor was taken off, and the anguish of her wound in the sight of her blood made her at first tremble and weep. But her confidence in her celestial mission soon returned. Her patron saints seemed to stand before her and reassure her she sat up and drew the arrow out with her own hands some of the soldiers who stood by wished to staunch the blood by saying a charm over the wound but she forbade them saying that she did not wish to be cured by unhallowed means she had the wound dressed with a little oil and then bidding her confessor come to her she betook herself to prayer in the mean while the english in the bulwark of the tourelles had repulsed the oft-renewed efforts of the french to scale the wall Dunois, who commanded the assailants, was at last discouraged, and gave orders for a retreat to be sounded. Jean sent for him and the other generals, and implored them not to despair. "'By my God,' she said to them, "'you shall soon enter in there. Do not doubt it. When you see my banner wave again up to the wall, to your arms again, the fort is yours. For the present, rest a little, and take some food and drink.' "'They did so,' says the old chronicler of the siege." for they obeyed her marvelously. The faintness caused by her wound had now passed off, and she headed the French in another rush against the bulwark. The English, who had thought her slain, were alarmed at her reappearance, while the French pressed furiously and fanatically forward. 
a Biscayan soldier was carrying Jeanne's banner. She had told the troops that directly the banner touched the wall they should enter. The Biscayan waved the banner forward from the edge of the fosse and touched the wall with it, and then all the French hosts swarmed madly up the ladders that now were raised in all directions against the English fort. At this crisis the efforts of the English garrison were distracted by an attack from another quarter. The French troops, who had been left in Orléans, had placed some planks over the broken arch of the bridge, and advanced across them to the assault of the Torrel on the northern side. Gladsdale resolved to withdraw his men from the landward bulwark, and concentrate his whole force in the Torrels themselves. He was passing for this purpose across the drawbridge that connected the Torrels and the Tête du Pont, when Jean, who by this time had scaled the wall of the bulwark, called out to him, "'Surrender! Surrender to the King of Heaven!' Ah, Glacidas, you have foully wronged me with your words, but I have great pity on your soul and the souls of your men. The Englishman, disdainful of her summons, was striding on across the drawbridge, when a cannon shot from the town carried it away, and Gladsdale perished in the water that ran beneath. After his fall, the remnant of the English abandoned all further resistance. Three hundred of them had been killed in the battle, and two hundred were made prisoners." The broken arch was speedily repaired by the exulting Orléans, and Jeanne made her triumphal re-entry into the city by the bridge that had been so long closed. Every church in Orléans rang out its gratulating peal, and throughout the night the sounds of rejoicing echoed, and the bonfires blazed up from the city. But in the lines and forts which the besiegers yet retained on the northern shore there was anxious watching of the generals, and there was desponding gloom among the soldiery. Even Talbot now counseled retreat. On the following morning, the Orleanese, from their walls, saw the great forts called London and St. Lawrence in flames, and witnessed their invaders busy in destroying the stores and munitions which had been relied on for the destruction of Orleans. Slowly and sullenly, the English army retired, and not before it had drawn up in battle array opposite to the city, as if to challenge the garrison to an encounter. The French troops were eager to go out and attack, but Jeanne forbade it. The day was Sunday. In the name of God, she said, let them depart, and let us return, thanks to God. She led the soldiers and citizens forth from Orléans, but not for the shedding of blood. They passed in solemn procession round the city walls, and then, while their retiring enemies were yet in sight, they knelt in thanksgiving to God for the deliverance which had vouchsafed them. Within three months from the time of her first interview with the Dauphin, Jeanne had fulfilled the first part of her promise, the raising of the siege of Orléans. Within three months more she had fulfilled the second part also, and had stood with her banner in her hand by the high altar at Reims, while he was anointed and crowned as King Charles VII of France. In the interval she had taken Jargot, Troy, and other strong places, and she had defeated an English army in a fair field at Pâté. The enthusiasm of her countrymen knew no bounds, but the importance of her services, and especially of her primary achievement at Orléans, may perhaps be best provided by the testimony of her enemies. There is extant a fragment of a letter from the Regent Bedford to his royal nephew, Henry the Sixth, in which he bewails the turn that the war had taken, and especially attributes it to the raising of the siege of Orléans by Jeanne. Bedford's own words, which are preserved in Rhymer, are as follows. 
and all thing there proposed for you till the time of the siege of orleans taken in hand god knoweth by what advice at which time after the adventure fallen to the person of my cousin of salisbury whom god assailed there fell by the hand of god as it seemeth a great stroke upon your people that was assembled there in great number caused in great part as from try of lake and sad believe and of unlevel doubt that they had of a disciple and lime of the fend called the pucelle that used false enchantments and sorcery the which stoke and discomfort not only lessened in great part the number of your people there but as well withdrew the courage of the remnant in marvellous wise encouraged your adverse party and enemies to assemble them forthwith in great number when charles had been anointed king of france jeanne believed that her mission was accomplished and in truth the deliverance of france from the english though not completed for many years afterwards was then ensured the ceremony of a royal coronation and anointment was not in those days regarded as a mere costly formality it was believed to confer the sanction and the grace of heaven upon the prince who had previously ruled with mere human authority thenceforth he was the lord's anointed moreover one of the difficulties that had previously lain in the way of many frenchmen when called on to support charles the seventh was now removed he had been publicly stigmatized even by his own parents as no true son of the royal race of france the queen mother the english and the partisans of burgundy called him the pretender to the title of dauphin but those who had been led to doubt his legitimacy were cured of their scepticism by the victories of the holy maid and by the fulfilment of her pledges they thought that heaven had now declared itself in favor of charles as the true heir of the crown of st louis and the tales about his being spurious were thenceforth regarded as mere english calumnies with this strong tide of national feeling in his favor with victorious generals and soldiers round him and a dispirited and divided enemy before him he could not fail to conquer though his own imprudence and misconduct and the stubborn valor which the english still from time to time displayed prolonged the war in france until the civil war of the roses broke out in england and left france to peace and repose End of section thirty six